In this episode, I'm joined by Alan Anstead, who is a, a colleague of mine, actually, at the Cambridge Marketing College. Although, interestingly, we sit on, I guess you could argue, slightly different sides of the fence at the college because Alan is uh, responsible for many things PR and he sits on the kind of the PR communication side of the fence. And I'm kind of on the other side, which is the uh, the marketing stroke communication side. So I guess we kind of blend in the middle a little. And that's really what we're going to talk about today, which is communicating a uh, contentious, interesting, somewhat um sort of amorphous kind of uh, concept, which is this concept of sustainability. And I am very, very pleased to be talking to Alan about this because I know Alan has a lot of opinions, a lot of ideas, a lot of thinking, a lot of experience communicating such things. And we'll see what context Alan wants to kind of really view sustainability in. And I think that's going to be a really interesting one as we see kind of almost both sides of this communications coin. So we're going to see where that conversation leads. But I want to introduce, for those of you who don't know Alan, I want to uh, introduce you uh, to him. So Alan, do you want to give us a little flavour of kind of one, well, who you are, but two, kind of really what has brought you in your journey to this kind of communications point today? Yeah, thanks, Neil. Um, thanks for inviting me to the podcast. Um, yeah, um, I did actually start with marketing. I did with Cambridge Marketing College many, many years ago, did the CIM exams. But in my work, I found that actually what I was doing was communications, public relations, I was working for Foreign Commonwealth Office at different places around the world. I was training um, communicators, which sounds like a really good job every month, different country for a few days. Actually, it was night times on planes, training back on a night plane. Um, but it, it was an experience. And I found that I was doing communications. And that's kind of been my, my forte and, and also something I'm quite passionate about. But I do understand you know, that marketing and public relations communications work hand in hand. And, um, you know, they're, they're complementary disciplines. So, yeah, used to work for the Foreign Office, um, then worked for um, a charity, or a number of charities, actually, over the last 10-plus um, years. And um, do little bits of teaching, both apprentices and um, the Charter Institute of Public Relations uh, qualifications with the college. And that's, I guess, one of the, the really interesting kind of starting points, really, is, is with the CIPR stuff, because um, I'm sure we'll come on to the apprenticeships uh, in, in a while. But I'm, got, I'm quite sort of intrigued and, and a little bit like you. You know, I've spent a lot of time, you know, almost as I describe it, almost on the other side of this uh, this interesting equation of communications, because I think, you know, there are um, certain uh, perspectives which, because we get led down one angle or, or one sort of different uh, path, I guess, in, in our own disciplines, that um, there's a lot of crossover, I mean, absolutely for sure. But I, I think in some ways there are differences, but there are just sort of interesting perspective let's call them that on on both sides of this equation and so i mean starting with sort of cipr stuff because i mean that is um in itself obviously it's it's a qualification route it's a um it's it's a governing body if you like of best practice it's a way of kind of um synthesizing all of the good things that you know prevalent within the industry i mean you must have seen over kind of recent years with this whole and we're going to sort of start to use it a little bit more in this conversation i guess sustainable or sustainability you, you must have seen a, an evolution i guess of, of those conversations of things that are happening with cipr it, it is changing i mean it certainly is with cim on the marketing side cipr must be doing sort of similar things and trying to kind of figure this out it is practice if there are certain ways of you know focusing this communication and um, and we'll talk about different sort of styles and sizes of organizations uh, in, in a moment but how, how is it with CIPR right now I mean is it, are they kind of figuring it out is it is the answer there or is this very much part of a journey on that side as well yeah I think it's part of a journey um, I don't think that's a bad thing I think that fits in with the, a changing world as well that it needs to be a journey that there isn't a solution to something and uh, CIPRs where they are on that journey at the moment is that they have um, established a specialist diploma 
so um, level seven diploma um, in sustainable communications, which is quite an interesting field. It, it fits their suite of having one on crisis communications, having one on digital communications, and having one on public affairs, that relationship with government and lobbying. And now there's one on sustainable communications. Uh, and that's where they are in terms of CIPR. Um, <clears throat> take the sort of the bigger picture over the years. To, to me, it was you know since the 1980s when um, at least I suppose, because I'm getting a bit older, um, first sort of heard the term used, not as sustainability then, but it was very much corporate social responsibility. It's kind of really got a big push back in the 1980s. And, um, you know, there was, and, and since then, and, and you still hear the term corporate social responsibility in many organizations, many companies still use that. And I think it's still very similar. It's one-off projects, initiatives, things that an organization does, and often they are for the good, environmental good or social good. But sometimes it's a bit tokenism. And I have seen um, you know, and including with uh, listed companies, that their corporate social responsibility was overemphasized on their homepage of that PLC's um, website. There would be a link to corporate social responsibility. Click on it, and there'd be a nice report there full of glossy photos, smiley faces. And actually, when you read it, you start thinking, well, what actually did it achieve? What impact did it make for either the environment or for communities of people? Uh, and th there was that tokenism plus an overemphasis. And that goes back to the 1980s. But yes, there was some good work done then, as there is now. Um, but there wasn't that accountability there. There wasn't um, any standard that had to be met. It was up to the organization to decide what it wanted to do. Some of them did some good things. Some of them didn't shout about it, kept it internal, something for staff. And that's not a bad thing either. I think there's, we can talk about it in a minute, the, the benefits to employees of uh, sustainability and bringing that in. But some of them used it as a means to promote themselves as companies as organizations um, you know there are some cases of overemphasis I think that journey moved on um, in the 1990s to something called triple bottom line reporting which gave it some accountability that in a in a organization company's annual report not only should it be um, talking about profit, 1P, so its financials um, and its operational targets have been met, but two other Ps, people and planet. What it had done in the last year for the environment, um, what it had done for communities of people. So a bit of accountability there in triple bottom line reporting, but it's still not perfect because it's, you know, the organization can write again, whatever they want. There is no standard to meet. Um, they could, if they want, still overemphasize it. Yes, accountability to their um, stakeholders who read the annual report with that triple bottom line reporting, but still some weaknesses. And then it kind of moved on more recently, and this is the last few years, as uh, certainly is um, in, in, in the financial um, investment sector, but also a bit in communications, this concept called ESG, Environmental Society and Governance, which is full of benchmarks. It's all about data. Um, it's all about meeting a standard. But then again, there's criticism of that, that, well, is that understandable to people? Uh, and I know of organizations that are doing ESG for the best of intentions who have to employ people just to run their ESG programs. People understand how to use that data. And it's because it, it came from investors. It was investors who wanted to put their pension fund money that they were managing or, or their, uh, um, their, their resources into a 
a company that they saw as having a medium to long-term sustainability and therefore it was doing the right thing for environment, um, for societies, for communities and people and was governed well. And that's kind of where it was left at, which still leaves the, and that was really appropriate to big companies that have the resources to look after ESG programs. You know, what about the small and medium-sized enterprises that really couldn't can't afford to bring in extra people just to look after a, a sustainability program? And I think that's where it's at. And I, I think that's where, um, you know, it's good that, say, CIPR um, is looking at qualification in that, um, that CIM is, that there's an apprenticeship, so that there can be sustainable um, communications and sustainability as a management process um, that would be appropriate to every type of organization in every sector, companies, um, charities, I've done a lot of work in the charity sector, as well as you know, public sector organizations like NHS or government departments. So it, it's still a journey very much. I don't think there is a, 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 a that silver bullet, but I think it's moving in the right direction. Mm, it's, it's interesting when you say about the, the ESGs and actually bringing, you know, individuals in to almost manage it, be responsible for projects and initiatives, because it feels, I mean, if, if the organisation, and I, I mean, I guess I could be referring to any size of organisation here, has it at its core culturally, if there are processes, if there are incentives, if there's a real clarity of both, you know, developing sustainable initiatives and then actually communicating those both internally and externally, then it's it's for something where something that everybody can get involved in. Whereas actually I think what you're describing here is that it's almost being and I, and I guess there are lots of examples of this, and certainly the ones that I've seen would kind of bear this out, is that it's being almost held by a few and then kind of communicated, almost sort of sponsored in communications across the organisation. But there is almost like a few people who are almost tasked with it. Um, they're accountable for it, but it isn't really for everybody, is it? And I think this is quite an interesting one because I guess you could say in an ideal world, irrespective of company size, if an organization really truly believed that this was the future and that this was a sustainable way of doing business, everybody would be involved. What, why, why do you think this is almost sort of held to a certain you know, chosen few, if you like? Yeah. Um, looking at just the communications of sustainability, I don't think it's easy. Um, and I think... It, it, but you know, if we step back one thing, in a sense, it could be easy because society wants companies and organizations to be sustainable. There's lots and lots of research that shows that. The Edelman Trust Barometer um, every year shows more and more that, that not only are companies the most trusted out of companies, government, NGOs, and media, much more trusted in charities, that people also expect companies to be doing the right thing with on environment but also social good to be playing their role so you know there's an expectation of public uh, and um, I think as well that if companies and organizations thought of it around even if it's broadly reputation how do stakeholders want that company that organization to behave it might be easier but just back to my point about why it isn't easy, I think there's a lot of data there and, and data isn't easy to communicate. People, it goes over the head of many people, myself included often. You know, people want storytelling. They want to know about humans and how it affects people. And um, I think that that's, that's perhaps the key to it. It needs to be broken down out of the ESG and all that data. Yes, that sets a standard which... You know, as I said earlier, that was the thing that was missing in the past, having a standard to aim for. But in terms of turning that into things that people understand what the company is doing, why it's doing it. I think there's some interesting examples. Even at the moment, today I was reading about Unilever and, and their response as to why they are doing ESG today. Uh, and yes, they're being pushed by one of their 
um, biggest investors, BlackRock, but it was all about sustainability in the longer term, what they felt as a company with a massive global presence should be doing, their purpose as a company. And I thought that was really interesting because Unilever has come under fire from some investors who have said, no, you should be maximizing profit, not investing into um, into sustainability. And it has been some criticism of Unilever, but the CEO, I see today's newspapers coming out very strongly. No, sustainability is really for us as an organization who wants to be there in 10 years time, in 20 years time. That's the way, because that's what society wants. So the background's there. Um, but I think it's around, you know, how can one do it? Uh, and, you know, you, of course, Unilever is a massive company with lots and lots of resources and lots of very good people who work there. How can a small company do it? And um, I think there's some some interesting little things to think about in terms of um, um, selling sustainability and putting across what the organization, what the company um, is doing. And um, I think that then, you know, if that's done well, and we'll come to that in a minute, how perhaps one can do it. I think that, that consumers do care. Consumers do care about what an organization is doing. Lots of research about that, especially millennials and Generation Z. But I think goes wider than that. People do care nowadays. You, know, you only have to go on um, Amazon and there's not questions about a product there. It's a questions about the packaging. Is it sustainable packaging? You know, people do think about that so much more nowadays. Um, and um, yeah, I think that, that you know, it, it's around um, selling sustainability um, in a, in a, to, to all of the stakeholders that are important to that organization. And one way of doing that is to think about, well, what are some of the barriers that um, people have? What are some of the benefits that people are looking for? Um, and then you can perhaps come up with a, a value proposition um, that really suits the consumer. So things like electric vehicles, some of the barriers may be, someone say, well, it's performance, it's not as good as a diesel or, or, or a petrol car. Um, Actually, that's not necessarily true. Look at Teslas and how fast they go. Or it could be about, well, there's not enough charging points. Well, they're growing and there's lots and lots more. Um, uh, so that, you know, that those barriers need breaking down and facts putting across about it if, if we were EV car manufacturer. Um, and then the benefits that people are looking for can be sort of functional benefits. It's going to save you a load of money, particularly if they're looking at the price of petrol and diesel at the moment. Um, it's also around, well, you can charge your car at home at your convenience overnight rather than having to drive to a petrol station and fill it up there, which will take at least five minutes, if not perhaps longer with the drive there. Um, and looking for, for perhaps those emotional things, you know, I've got an EV car, I'm really doing my bit for the environment, uh, or, or social as well, you know, hey, i got a Tesla. I haven't, by the way, so I'm not quite so <laughs> um, rich enough to be able to do that. And, and that then comes up with, with value. And I think you're thinking those things through about reducing the barriers and emphasizing the benefits is a really good way for, for organizations in their particular sectors, for their products, their services, to think about how to really put across sustainability to the stakeholders that really matter to that organization. Yeah, and there's, there's a word I'm hearing you saying quite a, quite a lot, which I want to kind of do a little bit more of a deeper dive into, and it's this word responsibility. Now, obviously, it comes through in corporate social responsibility, as you described it, you know, which goes back decades, but it still feels like it's there. Is, is there, a, from your perspective, like a, a real moral responsibility on businesses, NGOs, charities, and any organisation, really, uh, th this kind of responsibility that they have to do this. Now, they can choose not to do it. They can choose to dip the toe in the water and maybe begin the journey, or they can choose to go all in. I mean, if you're Patagonia and you declare that you're, no, 
you know, your only um, investor is the planet or your only shareholder is the planet, I think was the phrase um, quoted a couple of weeks ago. It's, you know, everybody's now seeing this you know, huge commitment of, you know, just 100% responsible um, sort of ethos, if you like. But for most of us kind of mere mortals, I mean, this this word responsibility, do, do you see that coming through in this storytelling that you're saying? Because it feels like, because of the number of times you've said it, it feels like it's a really important word. Yeah, I, I think it is. Uh, and I'm going to use another. This is perhaps slightly contentious. License to operate. And it's not something you get from the local authority or the government. It's from people, communities of people. And it's on the basis that, uh, let's, let's take a, a company that's manufacturing something. So good things, it's providing a livelihood to a number of people, their families. Um, it's providing products or services that are wanted. But the negative things are, well, there's going to be some kind of pollution. There's going to be some kind of traffic and things moving about. Uh, and, you know, that, that, that having that responsibility that overall we are doing good and for some of the things which are not so good the negative things we're doing something about that we're trying to reduce um our our carbon we're trying to re, re, you know, re, recycle things we're, we're trying to to make our whole operation more sustainable and that then gives the license to operate perhaps even if it's from a local community that yeah okay there's you know lots of trucks coming through but overall, they do the right thing. And I think that's, that, to me, is what it's about. So, you know, whether, whether it's the, the famous um, clothing, outdoor clothing manufacturer given, being given the license to operate globally because they're doing the right thing to any other small local company, I think that's what it is. And, and I think it all stems from the fact that people, and something we talked about a little bit earlier, people are more interested in the environment, are more concerned about climate change. They're seeing the effects of it much more often now in severe weather that we receive, or, or you know the 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 the, the um, climate changes that are happening that one can actually observe and see nowadays. And therefore, they want um, all elements of society to do something about it. Um, and it's not just left to those who account themselves as activists to be standing there. I think the research shows that generally the population are actually really supportive of that everyone should play their part in making the world a better place through environment and also through society as well. Mm, this license to operate thing, that's... I'm sure everybody listening to this will be thinking, hmm, there's something, there's something really, really tangible but interesting in here. Does this, I just want to kind of, again, push this one just a little bit further and sort of see where, where we kind of end up if we do end up somewhere. If, if I have a license to operate, so maybe some self-disclosed evidence of, you know, initiatives that we're doing, and then company X down the road, who is my competitor, also are doing a similar thing. Do, do we enter almost like a, a little bit of a sustainability trade war? Because, you know, if, if I'm here storytelling and I'm willing to kind of say this and that and company down the road thinks, oh, right, now I've just seen what you're doing. Right. OK, so we're going to we're going to add one on top of that. We're going to do a little bit more than that. Does it become I mean, it always used to be price. You know, it's like if, if a marketplace could, you know, be driving the price to the floor kind of thing. It's like, yeah, we're the cheapest in the, in the market. So you're going to buy our stuff. This is almost feels like it's the converse. And it's. The danger, surely, here with this kind of license to operate is that it's used as a competitive tool. I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing, but it's we're entering into, well, uncharted water here, aren't we? How are we going to manage this if it is a competitive tool? Yeah, and I, I, I think it can be used that way. I, I don't disagree with you at all. You know, what's reputation about, really? It's a competitive tool, isn't it? It's how mm. people might choose what product to buy or service to, to order or whatever it may be on the reputation of the company or organization it comes from. So you know, that competitiveness, I think, has always been part of reputation. But there's another field that I would like to explore, if, if that's okay, Leo. And that's, you know, the, the, we're talking about external with stakeholders. 
uh, and competitiveness, but not every company shouts about what they're doing on sustainability. Many don't. They keep it within the company. Um, and, you know, I think there's a, there's a good balance be had between saying what you're doing as well as, you know, and then you have to do it, walking the talk, but also about what it means um, internally. Uh, and I see there's a big area for sustainability um, in, in, in human resources, in internal communications with employees in this broadest sense that, that an organization that is seen to be doing the right thing on sustainability undoubtedly will be regarded as um, a, a um, employer of choice in terms of recruitment. And, you know, for many sectors at the moment, recruitment is a big issue, skill shortages, um, low unemployment, and um, many organizations lacking um, the talent that they need. Well, perhaps having a sustainable and, and, and truly to be seen as a sustainable organization really helps with that. Yes, it's a bit of competitiveness there too, but and reputation definitely, but it's there. Then you've got existing employees who, who enjoy working for a company or an organization that's doing the right thing. Um, I know of a few companies that give their staff two or three days off a year. They have to apply for it and say what they're doing to work with local charities, charities that they as an employee choose to. And they have to get a statement at the end to say they've done it. So there's lots of kind of safeguards that they're not just sitting at home watching Netflix or something. Um, but they're doing things, you know, and that could be really good in terms of employees feeling, yeah, we're allowed to do that. I could do something that maybe it's a local school and painting the gates or wherever it may be. Something as simple as that, but something that would make a little bit of a difference, both to the beneficiary of that, the school in that case, but also the employee. And I think that's great for, for retaining talent within the organization as well. That, um, and, and I've seen uh, some companies where, where the sustainability, they, they call it in this one company, I'm thinking of corporate social responsibility. So you use that term, which is still around, but we started talking about um, starting 1980s. It's all run by the employees that the, the directors say yes to whatever the employees decide democratically they want to do. Um, another company, um, two companies, in fact, that on the public relations apprenticeship, they did their endpoint assessment around charity of the year for and it was two separate companies. One did it on launch, the other one did it on the actual process of choosing the company a year, which was a factory where the workers at that factory chose from a short list, um, from presentations, the, the um, charity of the year they wanted to support. That wasn't shouted about much. That was more for employees. And I think you know, that that's another side to this. We, we, we read a lot about greenwashing and all the external elements, marketing and communications, the sustainability that perhaps negative. And perhaps we read about some of the good things. I was just talking about Unilever. I think the hidden area is perhaps the human resources and the internal communications that can make a difference to the overall competitiveness of an organization. Hmm. Yes, it kind of fits then whatever the style or culture or tone of voice or kind of ethos of the organization. It feels like there's almost there's something for everybody. So you can do the big shouting from the hilltops or the rooftops if that is the style or culture of your brand or your business. But actually, if you want to keep it more subtle, you can also do that. And it almost feels then, I guess you could argue that there's equal value, whichever approach that you take, because there feels like there's a there's a natural benefit to, to any approach. I'm interested in actually just going backwards a few steps when you were talking about um, Tesla, because I, I understand, and I, I could be wrong here, so if anybody is from Tesla, listen to this, correct me if I am wrong, but I think this is true, um, is that Tesla will always only release information publicly, and I mean, this probably applies internally as well, in any kind of sustainability initiative if um, they've actually benchmarked the baseline from which they're operating. 
So I mean, I'm interested to kind of have your view really as a you know, really, really experienced communications professional. If you were advising an organization about almost the transparency of this journey, because I think what we're picking up is there's a lot of great stuff to share. You know, if you're doing stuff on your journey, talk about it either internally or externally. Is there kind of a limit? Because you know, organization like Tesla refusing to communicate anything, absolutely locked doors until they've sort of set that baseline and begun that journey is, is that a is that a good way of doing it or in, in your view if you were guiding or advising a, a brand of, of that kind of style and that sort of nature would you be saying no actually you've got to be a little bit more kind of open because otherwise you're gonna you're gonna get spotted you're gonna get shouted at because clearly if you're not open you must be hiding something you know from, from a, a PR perspective is that a good thing or is it you know transparency isn't really a, a suitable thing in lots of occasions yeah that's a very good it's quite a broad question but I think really Neil you, you know Tesla look at Apple as well um, you know before they, they say the date it's known eight months in advance of a new product launch there's a lot of build-up there's little bits of leaks and things that come out uh, and then sometimes after the you know, those regular product launches, you got was it um, the late Steve Jobs' daughter or, or one of the one of the very important people saying, "Well, the new iPhone 14 doesn't look any different to me than the last one." Um, you know, there, there can be that hype and everything there as well, um, which is about closely closely guarding everything about the new launch until the day just to get the information out um and the, you know that that's one side of it as well as not you know two of the things are out there not not um not giving much information the other thing i'd like you know, related sort of to that is around i think that that you know, and, and again if anyone from tesla's listening they can correct me as well if i misread this but i think they're selling the sausage they're selling the car and what it does and all of the mechanics on it rather than what you get from it and and um there's a, a fairly famous um from a from a salesperson american salesperson called elmer wheeler um wheeler um who said sell the sizzle not the sausage the idea you've got barbecue going, you know, you, you can't really sell a sausage, particularly if you think about a sausage and all the things inside it. You may not actually want to know what is in it, um, apart from perhaps a bit of meat or if you're vegetarian, the other things. But it's going to be stuffed with other things that perhaps you don't want to know too much about. And selling the sausage isn't, is not going to be the right thing. But selling that when it's on the barbecue and going and the sizzle and the smell and the smoke and feeling hungry that's what you can sell. I, I think you know, we talked about Apple just now, and I remember from the late Steve Jobs, as I seem to have just criticized him a few minutes ago, at least his daughter. If it was his daughter, it might have actually been one of the other founders or leading members that he said some years ago that um, we shouldn't sell a product. We should sell an aspiration. We should be marketing aspirations what it can do for people rather than the mechanics of a product and things. Uh, and I think there's something, you know, how can we apply that to sustainability? And, you know, th th that it's not just about exactly, exactly what we did, ESG, this data, it's about what that is doing for the world, what we are playing our role in society. That's more of the sizzle for people than we did this, we saved this, those this many tons of carbon last year, which is a bit more of the sausage. Mm. Yeah, it kind of makes you think, doesn't it, about almost the redefinition of marketing and the redefinition of PR, which was always about, you know, selling a product or service to make a profit, blah, 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 adding all value and this, that, and the other features and benefits, et cetera, et cetera, which is now very, very outdated. And I think, you know, we've just come up with a hundred reasons already in this conversation that say, you know, what has I wonder then if this is, and I'm just really thinking out loud, whether this is now the new currency. I mean, I'm not talking about, you know, a, a numerical currency or financial currency, but this is the new way that we, kind of interact with our customers or our stakeholders or our audience because if 
we can identify maybe, and again, I'm thinking out loud, but if we can identify prior to putting communications out that are all about the sausage, if we can identify with our target audience and kind of what's really meaningful to them in terms of that aspiration, they want to associate with brands and engage with services that are kind of resonating with their personal values and their purpose in life and you know what they deem to be you know an equitable and valuable kind of other brand and you know they they will look deeply into what you're doing way beyond the product or service they're going to purchase so i wonder if actually what we're doing here is we're almost redefining who our audience could be because there's been a lot of talk this side of pandemic and lockdown about businesses and you know, particularly commercial businesses, pivoting because on this side of pandemic, their audiences are looking very, very different. You know, they're, they're entering new markets and sectors because they have to, because the audience that once was there is now gone. So they're looking at their own capabilities and realigning what they can do with potentially a new audience. I wonder if when we communicate these stories, and I love that phrase storytelling that you were talking about. I want to pick you, pick you up on that one in a moment. But I wonder if we are telling our stories, if we have to do it in almost a language and translate all these kind of sausage stories, if you like, into the sizzle, the sustainability sizzle that actually resonates with the audience. Is, is this the new kind of market research? Is this the new stuff we should be listening to rather than by behavior and all those kind of traditional things that we research? I wonder if it's, you know, our audience values and our audience desires and, and requirements from a sustainability angle do you think there's something in that i think there is um i think there very much is and, and i think some of those things are interconnected to me it is about um organizations need to be better at understanding their audiences broadly uh, but their understanding their audiences isn't just about the demographics, you know, the, the age ranges or the sector they work in or things like that. It's very much about the psychographics, the motivations, the influences on that audience, what they believe in, um, where they want to see the world going. And I think it's those perhaps you might call the more emotional aspects um, that can be perhaps a barrier to some people doing something, or in fact can be a motivator that they do something. I think understanding that is really important. And, and I, I don't think, in, in at least I can only speak for public relations um, and communications, that we're moving much more towards an understanding of behavior change and, and breaking that down to something beyond nudge and those simple influences to really doing audience-centered research using the COMB model, which is a government model, in fact, um, and to really understand all of those barriers, which may, the barrier may not be anything to do with the, with the consumer, the person that's been trying to sell it, but it's something, someone else. And I think we're getting better at it, but we're a long, long way from it. And even in the PR world, you've got some leading people who say, um, that that sort of research that leads to behavior change communications is unethical. You're manipulating people's minds. Now, I don't go as far as that at all to say that, but I've actually seen another college, not Cambridge Marketing College, but their biggest rival who posted a blog that said that the NHS's um, vaccination campaign, the COVID vaccination campaign, was unethical. And I read it and I thought, God, you know, what? <laughs> it's for social good. It's for the health of people. It's for the health of the world almost. That, that you know, the people being encouraged, not forced, but they saw it, or the person who wrote that blog on their website saw it as completely unethical. And I've seen that similar, similar terminology used about um, behavior change communications. Of course, it can be used unethically, but overall, to me, it's all about understanding an audience in depth, why they don't do something, why they do something. What are their beliefs? What are their feelings? Everything about that audience. And I think that's something that, that actually marketing does so much better than public relations. I tell my public relations, CIPR students, you need to look at marketing. Um, you need to really see what they do. Look, look at how many personas they put together. You just take them as one group. 
public um, <laughs> rather than really mm. getting those characteristics. So I think there is some some really good practice there in marketing. And I, I probably, Neil, you'll tell me in a minute that actually marketing could get better at this. And maybe there's some things of what we've just been talking about that could improve in marketing. But I think, you know, that that's the way forward. It's all about a better understanding of audiences so that we can put things across to them, whether that's about sustainability and what they're doing, which can help an organization's reputation, which may give it that competitive advantage, but doing it in a way that's truthful, um, that, that gives them the facts, that's meaningful to those people. It's about humans, not the data. Yes, sometimes data is important, but what does that data mean? How does it affect a human being? Mm, we're looking at from, from the marketing side, looking at public relations and saying, my goodness, they're doing it better than us on the marketing side. So, yeah, I think we're probably both looking at each other thinking, yeah, you do it so much better than we do. And I think we're all on the journey. I think that's the, the, the harsh reality. It's very, very interesting what you say there about social marketing. Um, and for those of you who aren't really familiar with the term, that's not social media marketing. We're talking social marketing in terms of, um, you know, behavioral change or stimulating in behavioral change so social marketing which is very very subtly different but very very significantly different and i think there's a really interesting sort of piece there when you talk about you know the vaccine um sort of campaigns and things because what you'll probably identify there as you know from listening to that uh, that there are multiple different audiences and that's a really quite extreme example where people are very opinionated so you have the the pro camp and then you have the anti camp and if you try, as you say, this one message out, stimulating behavioural change and expect the same message, be it sustainability or any other kind of behavioural change um, or you know, promotional or communications message out there to resonate with everybody at the same level, it quite clearly isn't going to. So if you're in the anti-camp and you're being stimulated or, so to say, influenced to try and you know, go and have your first jab, that's going to be a very different message to if you're in the pro camp and you've already had, you're fully boosted, et cetera, et cetera. So it is very much different messages for, you know, different perspectives in the different, as you call them, persona groups there. I mean, this this to me is almost pure marketing and communications because it is very much almost getting to the point of this one-to-one. -one. So it isn't one-to-public, it's one-to-one -one communication. And that's hard. I mean, that is really hard. And I've played with this in business to business and, you know, account based marketing where it is, you know, the ideal is to try and talk to an organization and all its kind of various facets, on almost a one to one basis. It's really hard to do because you have to have so many versions of your one story, this one sizzle story that you've got. So you're not selling the sausage, you're selling the sizzle. But it's almost like you have to reinvent it multiple times to make it relevant to all these different audiences. This is hard stuff, isn't it? I mean, this is not, if you're going to do yeah. it at this kind of level, it's complicated. But it can be done, Neil. Here's an example for all of you. This was from some years ago, Barack Obama in the presidential campaign for re-election. And uh, this was told to me by a BBC journalist who was following Obama on the campaign trail. And he said that Obama had a whole team of people using social media, sending messages out. Every message had about 200 different versions of it, slightly different, all based upon what they knew of that particular audience. So they were segmenting in a, in a political campaign, like 200 different segments there that Barack would and his team would target. You know, and that, that's sophisticated, but it can be done. Um, and, and it worked, you know, and, and um, the, the BBC journalist was telling me, showed me on his phone, you know, I got one too. Uh, and it clearly showed that they knew I was on the campaign trail as a journalist following because that was what it was about, about the announcement that had just been made of you know, um, new policy that might be introduced uh, if, if Obama was re-elected, that sort of thing. Well, it'd be a very different um, message in his tone, um, but it's about the same policy, but in a different way. I think um, you know that 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 can be done. I think the other thing, and this struck me quite quite on the head almost. One of my students, CIPR students, was in the team who did the original NHS 
uh, vaccination campaign. And um, we were talking about it. So it's really interesting. Well, you know, behavior change, communication, vitamin hydrate, blah, blah, blah. And then I said to her, um, what do you do about anti-vaxxers? And she said, we never use that term. They are vaccine hesitant. And I said, well, why? I said, no, no, it's, it's negative. Anti-vaxxer is negative. We want them to do something positive. They're just a bit hesitant at the moment about they have some concern or some issue about the vaccine or we need to address that but taking them with a, as a negative and calling them an anti-vaxxer from the very beginning will completely alienate them you know, they will never then get the vaccine that struck me as thinking it's about the tone about the language we use as well and about thinking about that long term what we want people to do and how we might get them on their individual journeys to that point in time and, you know, and that takes some sophistication okay that was simple between you know not using the term anti-vaxxer and using vaccine hesitant but it, you know there if you take that to a more complex level um, and think about how people are influenced often it's in comms we found it's much more at the local level than the national level. Um, NHS were telling me that they got much better engagement on social media posts that said where in that person's locality they could get something like you know, the bookings are now open, there'll be the vaccine available in this, than they would having some celebrity saying, I had the vaccine, doesn't get, get gets a really low engagement rate. You know, this understanding there how people take things, people think about the local level, people want to think about their own communities nowadays. And, and that needs to be built in um, to any programme. We've been just talking about NHS and public sector. I think exactly the same could be thought about for companies and what they produce in goods or services as well. So I think what you're saying, if, if I kind of paraphrase, you know, the important kind of bits that we've been discussing here is that an organisation, public sector, private sector needs to be patient. They need to be listening to the audience. They need to be patient with probably the eventual outcomes of, of these messages. And if they're on this long journey, there's a there's a natural resonance with the sizzle that they're selling, and I can come back to that because I think that's a really, really great analogy uh, for, for this conversation because there's a lot of sizzle in, in sustainability. But it's kind of really being on this patient, long-form journey so that you build that understanding in this target audience so that why would they go anywhere else? And even if down the road this competitor says, oh, yeah, but we're also on the journey and we can do this and we'll do it for a good price too – you've already bought into company one rather than company two. And I think that to me, that's really important. So it is, it comes back to the fundamental principles of just good communication, doesn't it? Which you need to listen before you speak. You need to really understand who you're talking to. You need to be patient, quite pragmatic. You're never going to please everybody. And the uh, the hesitant uh, audiences, whether they're hesitant or anti, whatever it is, is defined and everybody's got a marketplace like that. You have to take a judgment and a, and a view, I guess, as to whether or not they're worth going after. If the potential reward is worth it, then you go after them. If not, stick with your loyal advocates because you know they're going to come back again and listen to the same message you know, time and again. So I guess it's about listening be patient and then taking those choices really and prioritizing, isn't it? And so for you, if, if that is kind of the way that somebody listening to this might, might sort of take this forward and remembering the sausage and the sizzle analogy, because that's great, is does this apply to all sizes of organization? Because I, I know you're a big believer that there's a lot of corporate stuff being talked about here and that for your typical SME, and let's face it, the vast majority of people in business are in a small to medium-sized business. They're not in a large corporate. So does this all play out in SME world as well? I think it does, Neil. I think you know that what you've described very eloquently of, of the listening, the understanding, and then the action to follow that is equally applicable to a very small self-employed person upwards to SMEs. And it doesn't, you don't necessarily need lots of capacity there. You need a bit of capability to do it, a bit of time, of course. You know, it's all based upon some research there as well, isn't it? But that's equally applicable to, to any company. And I, I would suggest as well that not just companies, but 
other sectors, so your charity sector, I don't think necessarily the charity sector is the most sustainable, um, apart from those who work in the environment and or climate change. The others are not necessarily. They don't think about that. They could. Um, same with public sector. Yes, local government does actually think quite a lot about sustainability, climate change. Um, NHS, it's moving that way. It's on a journey. It is doing things. Um, central government, well, I think the, uh, the jury's out, as uh, Liz Trust said about uh, President Macron recently. Uh, they seem to have mended those fences. But you know, I think it is applicable to all types of organisation. Um, uh, and it's the way it, where we're starting from. That's what society, well, the way society is moving is to be much more concerned about the environment, about people and communities. Uh, and, you know, that's brought about by climate change. It's been brought about by the pandemic and communities becoming very important to people and the war um, in Ukraine that's going on. You know, people become more sensitive to the fact that actually we need to do something. We need this world isn't just something we can use up and then you know, it's left, to, left to children's children to do something about something that has to happen now. And that you know, it's not just the scientists who are saying climate change has gone up two degrees. What does that mean to a lot of people? Um, but it's around real things that are changing that affect people's everyday life. Uh, and um, for those people are thinking about that you know how can we then in communications put that across one other little resource if i may include it near in our conversation is um i think i think imagery can help as well it, it gives that can give that greater perspective and context to people with an image as well as some words and and there's um a, a, an image library um that's put together by Climate Outreach, which is a UK um, non-governmental organisation, a charity, um, about visual communications around climate change and sustainability. And that whole library there, many of the images are free to use. Um, some of them do have a licence, but you know it's quite clear what that licence would cost to use the image, but many are free to use images. And they, they have some helpful guidance with each image as to how it might be used and what it might be used for. And it's very much about people and climate change. So rather than just a glacier melting, you know, it's about someone's livelihood being changed because of that glacier melting and rising sea levels. So I think it's a great resource. Um, well worth people just um, using their favourite browser, looking up climate outreach and, and having a look at what's there. Brilliant. I think we, we've uncovered, well, you've helped me to uncover you know, many opportunities here in this whole topic of communicating sustainability. So thank you so much for your time today and, and, uh, and good luck with uh, helping organisations of varying sizes on this journey, because I think we're only literally just beginning the journey in many cases, aren't we? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you very much, Neil. And same to you, because I see the work you're doing. Um, so good luck with that as well. Thanks very Thank much for, for the chat.